turn to Acts 14, 19 to 22. This is a scripture which gets to the heart of a question that I addressed in a recent television program, an age-old question of why God allows all of this human suffering, of why he allows every problem and trouble and trial and headache, the death of loved ones, financial reverses, disease, unhappiness of every kind, and why he allows wars and accidents and human suffering. Why does God tell us in Acts 14, beginning in verse 19, when it is speaking of Paul having been stoned and dragged out of the city and left for dead, and they preached the gospel in that city, conferring the souls of the disciples, verse 22, and exhorted them to continue in the faith, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Christ said in John 16, 33, In the world you shall have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And if you'll turn to 1 Peter, the first chapter, and read what that says, this is nothing new to most of us. We're very well aware, those who have studied their Bible over the years that have gone by, that the Christian is to expect certain troubles and trials and tribulations. That doesn't mean that we don't sometimes groan and gripe and complain and wonder why the fates or even God himself, and I've seen people get into that attitude, are picking on us when things like that occur. Breaking into the middle of the thought, he talks about in verse 6, and this is a very strange statement and very few of us ever measure up to it, wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through many troubles manifold temptations. Now, what are those temptations? When it says many temptations, I suppose you could cite every one of the five senses that govern your body and that rule to a large extent your choices in life, that basically play upon your emotions that had to do with the choices you made as a young person involving education, involving people with whom you affiliated, involving love, marriage, choices of job and position in life, choices you make every single day with regard to what you eat, what you wear, uh, who it is with whom you socialize, every little choice, every little decision along the way which is governed by the five senses of touch, sight, sound, taste, and smell. And to a larger extent, you'd have to look at the world and what is available out here. You can go down to the mall and you can sample a little bit of what is available. You can go to the motion picture theaters and all of these, and they sprung up like mushrooms, video stores, many of whom, I believe, rent X-rated behind the counter, under the counter, or maybe over the counter, uh, videotapes which show raw pornographic material, which is not suitable for any human being to look at, let alone children. Now, I haven't yet mentioned alcohol. I haven't yet mentioned drugs. And yet each one of those is a multi, multi billion dollar industry in our nations, in the Western world. And of course, they're pointed out by the communists and various repressive governments who talk about being very moral and very righteous, even though the Soviet Union has its own growing problem with alcoholism. And they point to the decadence of the United States and its various satellites. In one sense of the word, if you were to go back and investigate Vietnam, they had a very good, uh, positive, 
uh, accusation to make against the United States and a very corrupt South Vietnamese government because the corrupt South Vietnamese government was infused with multiple billions of dollars from the United States and everybody's cousin, uncle, and brother was riding around in a big Cadillac limousine. The United States was forking billions of dollars of tax money into the country, building super sophisticated deep water ports, huge 12,000 foot concrete runways, hospitals, schools, military, and uh, all kinds of other buildings and facilities, and the money was just flowing through American contractors into grafters' hands. And in the meantime, prostitution was in an all-time high, and every possible thing that appealed to prurient fleshly interest was for sale, drugs and so on. Many of the military men in the United States, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and so on in Vietnam were affected by that in a very large percentage. At some points in time, they said up to 50% of the people in the American military establishment in Vietnam were being, if not addicted, certainly they were using drugs. That's where the so-called fragging of officers began to occur for the first time in history in the American military organization where people would actually roll a fragmentation hand grenade in where a group of officers were sitting because the, the troops were rebelling against the, the officers. Without a little bit of a reminder, without going off into a complete sermon about the absolute wretchedness of the world in which we live, and I can touch on a couple of other things a little later on, the world in its din of its constant advertisement of indulge yourself says basically, if it feels good, do it. Now the question why, if God gives us these appetites, if God causes us to be born, a little human baby who continually wants to taste and to touch and to smell and to see and to hear. Every wonderful and satisfying thing. From the time we are little children, if we see something, we want to get it in our mouth. And we want to taste it. We want to find out what that is like and what it feels like and what it tastes like. And as very tiny little children in the neighborhood, beginning sexual curiosity and experimentation occurs. As we learn to become a little more of a social animal, when mommy tells the little girl how she should sit as opposed to the way the boy might conduct himself, we begin to learn in grade school and then later on in high school in the age that is so torturous and so difficult called puberty, when young children discover that there are members of the opposite sex and that even though they've been playing softball with girls that they treated just like boys, all of a sudden at about age 13, 14, girls are different. And suddenly there is something just altogether fascinating about them that wasn't a bit fascinating at age nine. If we're adults, we have every one of us gone through it, we're aware of it, and as parents, oftentimes we tend to forget it. And we're not able to use that one major signpost of parental advice, and that word is remember. Remember how it was. Remember what you went through. Remember what came to you. Remember what your trials and troubles were. Remember the problems you had. Remember all the embarrassment. And try to teach based upon helping your own child to avoid some of the things that came along to beleaguer you. Satan's world says enjoy yourself. Indulge. Partake. Wallow in whatever is available. On the other hand, you have religion. The Catholic religion and Protestant religionists. And they say, restrain, refrain, don't. They talk about commandments that say, thou shalt not. Now, why? People really do wonder why. And behind that question is a lot of uh, very unhealthy attitude toward God himself. 
There are many people who, when they get involved in deep personal crises, tend to blame God. They feel that the fates out there are after them, that it isn't fair, and that somehow they specifically have been singled out for terrible troubles that other people are not having. Human societies, as a result of all of this, have swung from one extreme to another from time immemorial. They've gone from libertine to repressive, from prurient to puritanical. And in all of their attempts to deal with all of this enormous amount of guilt, the church organizations have come up with various ideas on how to assuage guilt. I have on my desk a big, fat, thick sheaf of newspaper articles that have been sent to me that are just about mind-blowing. They have to do with the Roman Catholic Church and with a celibate priesthood. Years and years ago, and I have mentioned, I think, along the last few years in the tape program in this or that sermon, merely in passing, Hefele's Church Councils, one of the most important history books on the development of the early Catholic Church, and how it states in some of the papal encyclicals and bulls, as they are called, and well, they might be called that, that have come from the Roman Catholic Church, involving the gradual metamorphosis of the confessional, as to why it is that the confessional booth in Catholic churches are built the way they are, with little slats through whom a man may not put his hand. I won't go into detail. Hefele's Church Councils makes it very clear that what we are seeing bursting upon the world scene, child abuse, child molestation, pedophilia, it is called, so-called homosexuality, which is the kindest possible word you can put to it because it's absolutely a rotten perversion uh, beyond your ability to understand. But because of the fact that is literally rampant among a celibate priesthood, men who have voluntarily, but because of the peer pressure, been in a sense forced to live a so-called celibate life, but whose Human appetites do not suddenly cease because they took a vow. And that thick sheaf of newspaper articles in there will make you want to vomit. Not only that, it will make you as a parent be so thankful to the eternal almighty God that you're not a Roman Catholic and that your children don't go to a Catholic school, that they don't look upon a man wearing priestly garments with his collar around backwards and black and white as kind of like God. Oh, they go into the depths of what it does to a choir boy when the entire choir, all the choir boys, and I won't go into detail, have been molested by the bishop or by the priest who is there every single day to receive confessions. The same priest who in private counseling tells them they will die, they will go to hell if they divulge what has happened between the two of them. Now when a person who stands as if he is God goes to the point of indulging in every kind of perversion which instills the deepest possible sense of guilt in the mind of the person, and yet then puts that strange twist on it, actually using God's name to justify his incredible sin. This is something which creates a kind of a psychosis which is very, very difficult to deal with and in perhaps God's mind, because God is far more forgiving than we are, there is perhaps one little shred of hope even for people like that. And it is found in the fact that the statistics indicate that every one of those priests is himself a victim. It's just an endless cycle. 
they themselves, in the majority, I think 90-some percent, I forget what the statistics are, but the majority of cases were themselves victimized. Now, the very real world in which we live every single weekday morning is so very different from the way we feel as we sit here in church on the Sabbath. It's so very different from the wholesome, clean, wonderful environment of songs and prayers and scriptures. And of sitting decently and in order in a Sabbath service and going through the ceremony and the routine of sermonette and sermon. So very different. The day in, day out lives that we lead and the things that we come across, the problems that we have from one Passover to the next, to and from the Feast of Tabernacles, traveling about in the world, going to and from our place of employment, are the harsh, cruel reality of the kind of a world in which we live. Now, my father used to put it this way, let's go back to the very beginning. And before you fall asleep and get bored, I'm just going to refer right quickly to the Garden of Eden. Because it did all begin there. And some of the most essential questions of life are solved only by understanding what God did when he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And when he gave them two possible choices, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was a literal tree with a literal fruit. We don't know what kind of fruit. Some people might think it was an apple or a pomegranate or a banana, whatever they think it was. But whatever it was, it was both literal and symbolic. And the tree of life. Question. Since Adam was created out of red mud and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living nephesh, if Adam had not partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if he had not partaken of the knowledge, or that is the tree of life, and merely availed himself of every other tree in the garden, reached out for the taking, very large grapes, I assume, since we see that at the time of the inheritance of the promised land that people had to bear grapes on a stick between two of them that were about as big as grapefruits. We read the story of almost gigantism in fruits, and we've seen that in modern-day times, the Japanese, who have in, invented, or I should say perhaps experimented, with various means of creating gigantism in vegetables, I actually heard, believe it or not, of a 40-pound radish. Now that would be, you know, you could buy a radish and you could feed an awful lot of people with a sharp knife with a radish that weighed 40 pounds. But it, it doesn't sound good, I agree. Uh, Kitty's making a face, I mean, biting into a 40-pound radish. But anyway, they made, they had bunches of grapes that apparently two or three men had to carry. The grapes were about as big around as the grapefruit. Well, here were Adam and Eve in this luxurious, beautiful, warm climate with a little mist coming up and watering the soil, kind of like living in Hawaii on the island of Maui in the middle of the spring, I suppose, about 82 degrees every day. Every possible fruit and vegetable and wonderful thing that they wanted right close at hand to reach out and simply pluck from the branches. And they had a choice put before them. Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat except one. Now that one you're not to touch. Because in the day that you take thereof, you shall surely die. Now, we know the story that Satan the devil came along. And I have explained that in a sermon. You can have a tape of it at some time, which has to do with who and what Satan really is and the meaning of the Hebrew word nakash. And that it shows that it was actually serpentine, more like a dragon, but perhaps more like a carob in form at that time. And there are some confusions about it. And I confess that it's not all that clear 
but that he was not a red racer or a garter snake or a coral snake or a, a rattlesnake coiled around an apple tree is absolutely the truth according to the Bible. It was some magnificent looking creature that actually spoke to them and they were not affrighted because after all God had spoken to them and what did they have with which to compare? Uh, there were other creatures running about that had a long nose and they didn't call them like the Greeks thick skin, they probably called it a long nose. But anyway, that's another subject. So, Adam put these two human beings in the garden and said to them, and I want to turn to the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy because that characterizes what it was he said in a sense, and he says to us every single day the same thing. Every morning when we get up, this very same question is lying there to be answered between Almighty God and ourselves. He said in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 30, notice, see, look now, I have set before you this day life and good and death and evil, two opposite choices. In that I command you this day to love the eternal your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply. And Satan the devil has given the commandments a bad rap, so to speak. Millions of people has been, have been confused over the millennia by coming to believe that God's laws are restrictive and they are bad and evil, when you obey them, you don't have fun, when the exact opposite is really true. The things that Almighty God's law gives, to begin with, good health, a good, solid, stable, emotional control over your mind, uh, happy, healthy babies, longevity of life, peace, productivity, success, a certain amount of wealth without being overly wealthy or rich, all the things that God's law would produce naturally if you obey them even normally, naturally or physically without expecting the spiritual blessings to be added because God set those laws in motion and if we obey them even physically in the letter, they will have an automatic fallout and automatic blessings that would come our way. So the Ten Commandments of God have been portrayed by many people as being restrictive and confining and have been anything but something you would want. From the time of our childhood, we are basically tempted by other friends to go the wrong way, to go get into mischief, to get into trouble, to shoot spitballs, to dip the girl's pigtail in the inkwell, to draw character of the teacher, to sample the drug, sample the alcohol. Uh, to sample sex, sample whatever is there, whatever is available and appeals to the five senses. The idea that you would control those things and enjoy the five senses in a controlled environment, in marriage and in other ways, in controlled ways, in good food and a glass or two of wine with good friends, in a right occasion, it sounds evil and wrong and bad and restrictive. But just to go whole hog and just have everything that is out there, that's Satan whispering in our ear exactly as he did to Eve when he said, Thou shalt not surely die. Now he said, If your heart be turned away so that you will not hear, but be drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that you shall surely perish, and you will not prolong your days upon the land, whither you pass over Jordan to go to possess it, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. Actually, I think the word should be passed, should be, I call heaven and earth to record. That is, look at it, because so long as it remains, and so long as I am the creator who set all of this in motion, I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing, therefore choose life that both you and your seed may live. 
Now, why couldn't God have made it easier? I've been asked that question by people terribly distraught, near tears, having a battle with themselves. Why isn't it easier to obey God? Why is it so easy to do the exact opposite? Why is the line of least resistance, the line of giving in to human appetite, carousing, going out, smoking, dipping snuff, ingesting drugs, looking at prurient sex, reading the wrong kinds of books and magazines, going to the wrong kind of movies, thinking wrong thoughts, saying wrong words, doing wrong things, easy. I mean, as easy as I said, as slipping off a rolling log wearing banana skins for souls in a turgid mill race going 40 miles an hour after you've had three bottles of beer. And that's pretty easy. It is easy to go the line of least resistance than to simply just drift downstream. Any old dead carp can do that. But it's very, very difficult to do the opposite. Question. If Adam had not partaken of either tree, would he have lived forever? Do you all know the answer to that? The answer, of course, is found in Scripture, and there are several places, I'm sorry, places to which I could turn. Hebrews 9.27 is one. It is appointed unto all men once to die, and then the judgment. And the answer is that God made Adam flesh. And Adam was physical, and his life was a physical, chemical existence. And unless he had partaken of the tree of life, and then God had allowed him to live 400 years, 500 years, or 1,000 years, whatever God determined, or whatever the lifespan would have been back then, because of a complete absence of disease, and we know the great longevity of the patriarchs prior to the flood of Noah, eventually he would have aged, and he would have died physically or materially, and then God would have changed him automatically. And why, God, why, why didn't God do that? Well, the answer, again, is quite simple if you look at the entire plan, purpose, and program of God. And there's something beyond what I'm about to say that we can only really guess at. And the answer is because Almighty God is reproducing after the God kind and there is no church, and there is no collection of converted human beings on the face of this earth except your brethren and sisters in the worldwide church and a couple of other organizations that have, have come out of that parent organization or have perhaps been affiliated with it in some way who understand what I just said. The Baptist Church does not. The Church of Christ does not. Not any church in this world who accepts the idea of the immortality of the soul, going to heaven when you die, or going to an ever-burning hell, has the faintest clue about the real plan and the purpose of Almighty God. They do not know that God is creating, recreating really, after his own kind, in his own image, that he was not going to enlarge his family by only one or two, but by billions. And there is a reason why God wants to enlarge his family by billions instead of just a handful or one or two. Now, there's, there's no reason to go back, and yet many people will do that endlessly, and many people think they found the loose brick in the wall by which all of the bricks come tumbling down. If they can go back and just do a lot of human rationality, try to reason that everything is wrong in the Garden of Eden. 
that God was wrong and it couldn't have happened that way. And well, if God did that, then how come he let Satan get in there and wreck it all? I mean, people have actually written books by the dozens and argued for thousands of hours over the millennia about the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the serpent around the, the tree, and the knowledge of good and evil, and so on, and what kind of a nature man had. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 says, Since by man came death, and talks about the first man, Adam, yet in Christ shall all be made alive. If Adam had taken of the tree of life, would he have been instantly inducted into God's kingdom? The answer is absolutely not. Because what God had in mind would not have been fulfilled. Now God can make by divine fiat angelic beings, which he has done, and in some extent and to some degree that I do not confess to understand, historically, there was a time when those great angelic beings under a great archangel could have made a choice, a conscious choice. I take it that at that point in time, long before Adam was ever created, when one of them, whose name was Lucifer, made the wrong choice and began trying to overthrow God, that the others who were divided, it seems to be in the Bible that there is a triumvirate under Michael, Gabriel, and Lucifer. That those three have, each of them, because of what it says in Revelation 12, 9, one-third of all the billions of angels, however many there are, and there may be hundreds of billions, I don't know, that is under their control and therefore under their spirit, under their attitude, under their jurisdiction, and to obey and go along with just like one absolute harmonious a group of angelic spirit beings, the will and the dictates of their archangel. It's the only way I can understand why Gabriel and Michael are revealed in the Bible as being absolutely loyal to God, and one of them called Israel's prince, and appearing, as you know, the 11th chapter of the book of Daniel is actually a first-person quotation from one of the archangels. That is not a prophecy given of man, but a prophecy in first-person quotation from an archangel about all that was to take place from the time of Cyrus clear down to the time of the end. Yet Lucifer had the capacity to make the wrong choice. Once he made the wrong choice and was overthrown, and all of the angelic host has been able ever since that time to witness and to see what occurred at that time, I take it because of what the Bible says and what prophecy says, as well as biblical history, that that is a fait accompli, a past act, and that never again will that door be opened in their minds. But angels, that proves to me, were not automatons. They were not created by divine fiat to march about like a zombie and to always make the right decision. They still apparently have a certain amount of choice. The book of Job gives us a little bit of insight into it where we read, and I won't turn to that, about angelic beings, spirits who actually can come back and forth from the earth to the presence of God, who are counseling at the throne of God, and one saying after this way and the other after the other, and even Satan the devil appeared among them, and God said, where have you been? And he said, from walking to and fro on the earth, which you will recall I used to prove that the devil can only be in one place at one time. And the concept that the devil has a counterpart of God's Holy Spirit, which is an evil spirit, which is everywhere present and is omnipresent and can influence everybody at the same moment in time, is untrue. That was a false concept that my father took up with more than 20 years ago and began to believe. And he preached it and he wrote it and it's in his final book, which was a compilation of other materials put together 
that the human spirit somehow ingests through the air and through what he called the broadcast, and he used the analogy of radio, saying that Satan broadcast into your mind. So to my father, all of these five senses of touch and taste and sound and smell and so on that lead you to want to fulfill human desires are not just your nerve endings, but actually a voice that is being broadcast into your mind. Well, you can disprove that in an instant if you just think it through. What was breathed into Adam's lungs? The breath of life. By whom? By Almighty God. What was the source, then, of the air that filled Adam's lungs? It came from Almighty God himself, the one who was Jesus Christ, the one who did the creating. Was Satan broadcasting? No, he had to appear in person in the Garden of Eden, didn't he? And speak personally. And what does it say throughout the Bible? But that a person could be a demoniac, demon-possessed. In one case, there was a person who had a legion of demons inhabiting the same individual, the man of the Gerasenes, or the Gergesenes, as it's variously pronounced, who had a legion of spirits. In the case of the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, there was only one angelic spirit who was seen. Everybody doesn't have necessarily their own guardian angel, as a fable or tradition might tell us. There was one angelic being appearing in the furnace, even though there were three of the princes of the Hebrews whose lives were spared by the intervention of God. At the birth of Christ, Satan the devil appeared personally and influenced Herod and, of course, tried to have Christ killed. At the time of Christ's trial and crucifixion, Satan entered personally into Judas Iscariot and took over his mind. No, Satan can only be in one place at one time. But he has billions, perhaps, of demonic spirits who do his will. If you were to study a little bit into the religions of some of our North American Indians, the Eskimos, the Cheyennes, the Arapahoes are three that I think of, and you can look up the article under Shaman in the Catholic Encyclopedia. You can look up at the articles under that same word in the Encyclopedia Britannica. You can look under Spiritism and under Animism, and you will find that from India to Nepal to the Aleuts in Alaska, to the southwestern desert Apaches in the United States that there was a belief which is today extant in Africa in places like Chad or Dahomey or Niger that every, everything in nature, this plant, that river, that mountain, has its own spirit. They taught and believed that the shaman, which is like the witch doctor, and was also the medicine man. He was an advisor and a counselor. But in him reposed the ability to withstand and to get rid of, to somehow resist all of these spirits. And they told the story that every individual exists in an environment where there are thousands of all of these horrible spirits that are continually trying to get at you. And only the shaman, by his potions and his spells and his various uh, soothsayings and so on, has the power to withstand all of these spirits. Now, all in the world this is, is Satan's own corruption of what really is, and a desire on Satan's part to get people to believing in demonism and spiritism, and to become just constantly aware of the spirit world, and there really is a spirit world. But over-awareness of the spirit world, over, shall I say, curiosity, and unholy curiosity, can lead to some very horrible results. And people can become not only mentally deranged and disturbed, but literally demon-possessed by trying to delve into way, way too much of that kind of thing. 
But there are literally, who knows how many, but literally hundreds of millions, if not billions, of demons. And they are able to put thoughts into human minds, to, as it were, whisper in your ear, to appeal to an appetite. All of a sudden you're going along, everything is going fine, everything seems to be going good for you, and without you really realizing where it came from, some compulsion, some desire, something just springs into your mind that appeals to an appetite. I think I'll go over there and do this, or I think I'll go there and stop by and see what's happening, or I'll, I think I'll buy this, or I'll go see that, or whatever it is. And you never know. You just never know. In this scripture, in verse 8, I'm going to read this the way most people really see it. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are false, whatsoever things are dishonest, whatsoever things are unjust, whatsoever things are filthy, whatsoever things are ugly, whatsoever things are of evil report, if there be anything rotten, if there be any blasphemy, think on these things. Now that is the best advice you could give a writer of a Hollywood television script. Because if it does not have violence, rotten, filth, and prurient interest, and sex, and blowing people away, throwing cat entrails on the wall in slow motion just after the guy gets blown away with a double-barreled, sawed-off shotgun, if it doesn't have it in slow motion so you really get to wallow in all of this garbage, you're not going to see it be a box office success. We didn't really lose the war over there in Vietnam. I don't care what you think. Rambo went over there and took his shirt off and with one submachine gun, just won the war. And then he came back about three different times and kept on winning the war, and he's still doing it. I know somebody named their dog after him, Rambo. Dog attacks people. Takes a bite out of their leg when they go by. Uh, you know, this is available out there. Now, for some reason, we human beings are able to get into certain moods. Have you ever been moody? Now, I, by nature, am not necessarily a moody person. I'm not a brooding person, but I've known people like that. And sometimes it is not altogether their own fault. Sometimes there are a lot of other inputs that have caused or brought about a kind of an emotional upset where people just are not able to be ebullient, as we say, and are not able to think the best and hope the best and always be positive as a person. Why do you suppose there are millionaires out there like Zig Ziglar, I'll see you at the top, and so many people that you can go down here to the B. Dalton bookstore and there may be a whole section reserved for what is called motivational books. And they have sold millions of copies of those books, every one of which tells you how to overcome this feeling of failure and of being down and moody and morose and there's no need to worry, nothing's going to work out all right. And to tell you instead how to be upbeat and successful and happy and to meet every problem with a big smile on your lips and to be able to go through life as a very positive person. It's a big industry. Maybe it's becoming saturated, but believe me, there are thousands. I've tried to break into it with not much success because I'm Mr. Bad News and I tell the, tell the truth to people and they don't like that. So I can't really market what I have to say. Even when I get into the seven laws of success, kind of uh, stealing a march from my dad, but on the other hand, he took it from a book called 15 Principles of Success, and I have, I've seen that book, and I know every one of them, so that's, that's nothing new, 
But when I do, it's, it's, I'm very hard put to just give people upward and onward and just get up, you know, about your business without telling them a little bit about what's wrong in the world. But there are people that are multimillionaires out there because there is so much of this moodiness and so much discouragement and doubt and disillusionment and unhappiness and fear and guilt. Now, why didn't God make it easier? We come back again to the question, since Almighty God tells us to choose the right way, to choose His laws and everything that is good and wholesome, why did He make it so difficult? And the answer is found, first of all, in a definition of the word called character. You may think that what I'm about to say is not true. Do you know that there are some things God, because He has limited Himself perhaps, can't do? Now, although it says all things are possible with God, Almighty God has made it, or decreed perhaps so, that by the very nature of things, character cannot be instantly created. Because character, as it is defined, is the ability, and that is a huge subject all by itself that we can talk about, of coming to the understanding of the difference between good and evil, or right and wrong, and then the ability to make the right choice, and to subdue the desire to make the wrong choice, and to force yourself against your own desires, against peer pressure, against the whispers of Satan's demons, and you can't do that in your own strength, as we know, you've got to have God's Holy Spirit and God's help to do it, to make the right choice. How often in your life have you made the wrong choice? I can think of a few times where I've gotten into a situation to where when I escaped that situation, I was literally in tears praying to God saying, thank you, Father in heaven, because I felt so good. But how often in your life have you done it the other way and then felt so bad because you overindulged in this or you allowed yourself to have that or you did something else that you know is evil and wrong and bad for you, hurt your health, hurt your mind, hurt your spiritual character. It is very, very rare in the first place because of all of the innuendos from society, because of the so-called changing mores and values. How many times have you seen a television program, especially a Johnny Carson, if you ever stay up that late, which I basically do not anymore, where people actually applaud evil, divorce, all types of sins that God condemns in His Word, and time and again on some of the game shows, like the newlywed type of thing, which I don't watch, but I've seen a few minutes of it here and there, basically people that sleep around and people who are very loose morally and sexually are applauded. And the idea that people just go in and out of one another's lives, you know, and just are so-called so sexually active and so on, this is not looked upon as a sin which deserves death in this society today at all. It is held up as the thing that everybody does. So all by itself, it is very, very difficult, if you define character, to be the kind of a person who is able to sort the wheat, the wheat out of the chaff, to do away with Satan's constant, insistent whispering into your ear through his demons, that it's all right if it feels good, do it, and to say instead, no, that is absolutely evil and it's going to net not only a wretched, broken marriage and a wretched life and bad health and everything else, but death for all eternity because of being burned to death in a lake of fire. But sometimes one might ask, couldn't God have made it just a little easier? How easy was it for Jesus Christ? Let's turn to the book of Hebrews right quickly. Book of Hebrews, 
right after Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, and before James, if you're looking. And in verse 14, well, I'm going to go back to verse 10 and just skip along a little bit in the second chapter. Hebrews 2 and verse 10. For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons, billions of them eventually, unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, you know, I've had people tell me as recently as this last week on the telephone, Garner Ted, and they've listened to a lot of my takes, I can hear a lot of the pain you've been through. That's probably true. I think in past years, I used to refer to that a lot more than I do now. And as my father's death recedes into the past, I probably will refer to it a little less and less. And yet, even as the Apostle Paul could never forget his roots, and even as he referred to himself constantly in his writings, even up until to the time when he wrote his very final letter to Timothy about his past, how he was a persecutor and injurious, and he was forgiven, and so on, and about the things that he remembered from his days in the Sanhedrin when he stood there and held the garment when a very wonderful man of God was martyred. And Paul could never forget that. So it is difficult for me to forget some of the situations that I went through which perhaps tempered the steel, which perhaps, perhaps gave me some experiences that are going to stand me in very, very good stead in the future that certainly have given me a whole new concept about the way a man ought to be toward his sons and so on, and it will be to my good rather than to my evil to remember some of those things. Yes, there have been sufferings, but Christ was made perfect through sufferings. Both he that sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them his brothers, brethren, his friends saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church, while I sing praise unto thee. And again, behold, I am the children. And back in the last few chapters of Isaiah, shall a nation be born in one day? Shall I call to the birth and they not come forth? And God talks about there in sort of uh, metaphorical language of the fact of the resurrection when billions are going to be born of God in one day. Behold, I am the children which God has given me. For as much, much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, and with all the appetites that come along with it, he also himself likewise took part of the same. We don't seem to understand that the high priest who is waiting at the right hand of God the Father, up there above, went through every temptation exactly as we do. We sometimes listen to the devil trying to whisper in our ear through his demons that our lot in life is even more difficult than was Christ's. Have you ever toyed with that thought? Have you ever just sort of almost automatically believed that that's the way it is? Because he knew he was God's son. Therefore, it was easier for him. He was of God, and he knew it, and with a part of his mind, he could remember the way it was with the Father before he came down to earth. So therefore, being God in the flesh, he wasn't like us, just kind of anonymous out there walking around, taking the kicks and curses and the lumps and bruises and, and kind of slipping and sliding and going through all of our problems in life. He was like the super weightlifter picking up 100 pounds. He could do it with one arm. No problem. People are tempted to think that. They're tempted to think it is more difficult for them than it was for Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And they are so wrong. It is exactly the opposite. It is exactly the opposite. 
Take David as an example. It is almost axiomatic that for a man to have great qualities of strength, of leadership, artistic and creative ability, David was a marvelous poet. He was a marvelous musician. He did not just say, praise God, thank you, Lord, but he composed right out of his heart and his mind many, many beautiful, lyrical, wonderful tributes to God. He is my rock and my fortress. I will not be moved. Greatly is he to be praised. Verse after verse after verse. And when you study them in Bullinger's Companion Bible, do you know that every single one of those is closely interwoven in one of the most intricate patterns that the entire book of Psalms is divided up into dispensational properties, that there are acrostic psalms where it, it lists every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and each verse begins with that letter and so on. And there is symmetry and harmony and even spiritual quality to those psalms that has really never even been discovered yet. David was a man of great capacity for violent anger and for huge emotion, leaping and dancing before God with tears streaming down his face when they brought the ark back from kirjath Jearim, where it had caused all of the hemorrhoids to appear in the Philistines, and he brought it back to God's sanctuary. And when Michael looked out the window and thought ill of him, and of course from that time on, things weren't right between them. David was the man who, you know, went out and collected double what Saul wanted to win the hand of his daughter. David was a warrior. David was a general. David was a man who was a king. He was a builder. He was also a man of great physical appetite. A man who had many wives and many concubines. My apologies for David, I guess. And yet, God loved that man. Great flaws, great faults, huge mistakes, great sin in the case of Bathsheba. And the child was taken from him. And he fasted and bawled and prayed and cried. But there was something about David. David was a repenter. David was a man who was really a man after God's own heart in so many ways, and yet God would not allow him to build the temple. And yet in spite of all of those great flaws, and the Bible is very hard on its heroes, God shows us that David is going to rule over all of Israel. That means he is one step above Peter and all of the others, James and John, in the kingdom of God in the millennium because of certain capacities that God looked beyond and down inside of when he said at the very moment that he chose him instead of the other great stalwart sons of Jesse, because God looked inside that man's heart. David was basically at heart a good-hearted man. With all of his soul, he wanted to do the right thing. But there were times and circumstances where his physical senses and his appetites got a hold of him, and he just couldn't. And he made a mistake. And when it was pointed out to him, he repented. So what do you think of David? Is he really all that different from the rest of us? Now, Jesus Christ did not sin, but he was tempted to sin in every point exactly the way we are. It says here, For as much sin as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he himself also likewise took part of the same that he through death might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, Satan the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death, and I mentioned before the animus and so on, and you can try this out on yourself and wonder to what extent your own guilt sometimes is as a result of your fear of death. 
Your fear of eternal death, your fear of losing out on salvation, losing out on eternal life. Were all their lifetime subject to bondage, a big subject. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He experienced the same pulls and tugs of the flesh that you do, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered because he was tempted, he is able to help those, succor them, and that is a tender, generous, loving help that are tempted. He goes on to say, now consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Jesus Christ. And I won't read all the rest of that, but all the way through the third and the fourth chapters until we come to verse 7 of chapter 5. Speaking of Christ after the order or the rank of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying. The only occasion we read of, other than just in third person, where it said that Jesus Christ would get up early, and on the other occasion where the narrative says that he was out there praying and where the tears were, as it were, drops of blood, I think it's really implied. People have argued that for years, but whether he prayed so intensively that actually blood could come through the skin, I, I don't know. I'm not the authority on that, but I would be tempted to say that it's more metaphorical and that the perspiration was pouring from his forehead rather than it, he actually bled. But be that as it may. There is only one other occasion at the tomb of Lazarus when he saw the lack of faith of those people, that it said, Jesus wept. Therefore, I know that Jesus wept more than once. Jesus also laughed. Jesus could have every one of the great displays of human emotion that we can have. I could turn to the third chapter of Mark and show you that he healed in anger. That he could be upset, as we say, or angry with people. It says, be ye angry and sin not. Yet he didn't sin. But anger could well up in him, and he could be angry, but without the hatred, without the perverse anger where we can want someone dead or someone, uh, want someone hurt or injured that we become angry at. He didn't go to that point, but he could be angry. Parents can sometimes get angry at their children when they hurt themselves. My mother used to do that when we would hurt ourselves or cut ourselves. She'd say, you little dickens, you make me so mad. You're bleeding. And your mother says, you make me so mad. Why did you do that to yourself? Because it upset her so badly. Now, I have a little grandchild back there and three wonderful young men that are my sons back there and a wonderful relationship with every one of them. As a parent, when I saw my children doing things that hurt them, it made me angry. It also hurt. I mean, you can get that funny feeling. If you can recall when you were a kid and you first were swinging in a swing, or the first time you ever went right over the top at the great big roller coaster, and that feeling goes, <gasps> when you look down and you start rocketing down there. You know where you hurt? I know where I hurt, and I don't even want to talk about it, but I just sort of, oh, I cannot believe it. I mean, make you double over, but I'm telling you, it's almost like physical pain. When my child would hurt himself, terribly sick, injured, some kind of a, a real problem, that hurt all the way to my gut. Question, is God Almighty in heaven above unfeeling toward us? When we sin, when we give in to our human nature, 
and we go out and sample some of what is available, does God almost clutch his inward part, so to speak, and does it hurt him like a knife down deep inside, like a loving parent whose child is being hurt and injured? Don't the angels cry? Doesn't Jesus Christ himself look down and shake his head in great sadness when he sees us doing that? I think maybe that is a fact. I think maybe that, that can happen. In the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience, because character is something which has to be developed over a period of time. Character cannot be instantaneously created. God is not making molds one after another of automatons. He wants us to go through whatever our own private Valhalla, whatever you want to call it, our private hell, if you want to call it that, in life may be. You and your family, in your kitchen, your closet, your bathroom, your automobile, your job, the row you've got to hoe, and me and mine. When are people going to get over the idea that when they come to God, they come to an organization and understand that their lives and their salvation and their eternal life depends upon their direct access to God Almighty through Jesus Christ, their Savior, who loves them with all of his life and his being and who died for them and who hurts deep inside when they sin and they hurt themselves. Is there anybody in this room who wonders whether or not Fred loves Nina? Do you wonder about that love in that family? Do you know what he does? He takes care of that woman hand and foot, and he's done it for years. I think it's a beautiful love that he has. Well, the love that Jesus Christ of Nazareth has for us is something like that. I think Fred knows the row he's got to hoe, and his way toward the kingdom of God He's fulfilling a little bit of it every single day of his life. He's giving of himself to that wonderful woman that we love dearly too, both of them. They're a tremendous example to us, and we want to let you folks know that. Almighty God wants us to build character. I think that man builds more character in a week than I sometimes build in six months. I'm not sure I would be that big. He's a big man in my estimation, and you see what I'm saying, don't you? Great sacrifice and a great love. My Savior was made perfect and became the author of eternal salvation unto them that obey him. And he had to build on a platform, not because it was imperfect. Perfection is a process. There was not a day he was imperfect, but there was a day when he was not quite so experienced as he was the next day. And then he wasn't quite so experienced that day as he would be the following day. And finally, at the end of his life, when he was martyred, he was the most experienced of all. At the moment, Almighty God turned his back and left him to himself. And he cried out, Why hast thou forsaken me? The great plan of God has to do with the building of righteous character and of resisting the pulls and tugs of the flesh. Which is why God says, through much tribulation, we must enter into the kingdom of God. Don't count the tribulation as an evil thing. Look upon it as an opportunity. If you feel guilt, you feel bad, you feel evil, if you've done wrong, if you've sinned, rejoice. Because you can go to Almighty God on your knees and you know that he will give you forgiveness. And if you desire that, 
Then with a part of your mind, say to yourself, I hope I'm somewhat like David, that deep down inside of me, there is a human being here that God knows is a good-hearted person.